Our first lesson comes from the first book of Samuel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now listen for the word of God. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes to us from the Gospel of John, first chapter, verses 43 through 51. Listen now for the word of God. <clears throat> the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him who, about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you come to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God 
ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I first became a parent, one of the most thrilling pieces of parenting advice I ever heard was that if you wanted your child to turn out a certain way, you make that thing their identity by affirming it just over and over again. So for example, if you want your child to be an avid reader, you tell them over and over again, oh man, you really love books. You want them to not be a picky eater? You praise them saying, you know, you're so much better than your friends at trying new foods. I'm so proud of you. You're really different. You want your, fr- uh, your kid to be the kind of kid that doesn't lose it when they get hurt? You randomly tell other people, while they're listening, of course, but you're not talking to them, things like, you know, my kid never cries when she skins her knees. It's really weird. It's just how she's always been. <laughs> the idea is, once a child accepts certain attitudes or behaviors as being something integral to who they are, they'll continue to behave that way because they'll be internally motivated to do so and not because you tell them to stop crying or eat their food or you know, read their books or do their homework or whatever it is. Like you make it their identity. It's not brainwashing, it's parenting. <laughs> I do have to say though, um, after about 13 years almost into my own parenting journey, I can, and as an educator, I can tell you the results do not support this hypothesis. Uh, I think my favorite illustration of how much influence parents have uh, comes from a Facebook post I saw this week from uh, the local uh, parenting group that said a woman was driving down the high school and there are hundreds of kids and maybe four of them were in jackets. <laughs> so basically we only have so much that we can do to influence who our kids are and what they want to do. Because the problem is, it's actually really, really hard not only to try to shape and change someone's behavior um, and, and their identity, uh, it's hard even if it's somebody that you gave birth to and you're legally responsible for and you're raising them and you're teaching them, it's just really hard to know that you're getting it right. And sometimes when you do get it right, it might just be uh, coincidental that you shape them into being the kind of person that you want them to be. So I think about this sort of thing a lot um, in the context of my role here as the director of Christian education, um, because it's become clear to me over the years, uh, working with kids, having kids of my own, that what we do in church actually has a lot more to do with figuring out your identity and who you are and how that determines how you behave, rather than uh, sharing information so that we can organize our beliefs in some sort of systematic way. But when it comes to our children, we use a lot of words. You know, with adults, we say things like discipleship and belief, but with kids, we use words like education and lesson and curriculum. And I think that sometimes gives the impression that we can turn teaching children about our faith into something that's very straightforward and predictable. Uh, And what I mean by that is in school, you can take a child and you will teach them something like two plus two equals four, or that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, 
and the student will accept and trust that their teacher is telling them something that is right and true. And there's also a progression in ability and skill, like in language arts when children go from sounding out and identifying letters to reading words to reading sentences, and then they can analyze poems and essays and novels. You know, there's a some kids might struggle more than others, but you know, there's a process there and it works. In contrast, though, here at church, what we want children to understand is ultimately not any different from what we are trying to share with one another as adults. It's actually the same thing that Philip, in this story, tells his friend Nathaniel. I met this guy, Jesus, and he's someone that's about to do some amazing things. He asked me to follow him, and I think you should too. Well, as you can see, Nathaniel is not immediately convinced. And to be honest, at church here in Sunday school, the children are also not immediately convinced either. Because the problem is, you can teach people all you want about God and the Bible and all the good things that God wants to accomplish on earth. You can even get them to agree that all this is interesting and worthy of study. But the point of what we're doing here, the point of the study and reflection and the discipleship, it's not to pass an exam or to acquire a lucrative skill, ha ha ha. Um, it's there to help you recognize what's happening when God calls us to be followers of Jesus. Now, when I use this word call, I think most people might immediately think it typically applies to the most extraordinary servants of God, a prophet like Samuel, an apostle like Nathaniel, or maybe someone like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we remember this weekend in this country. Most people would also accept the word also applies more generally for all people engaged in ministry or some special good purpose in the world, uh, including pastors, relief workers, and the like. But I think this story about Nathaniel meeting Jesus here points to a more helpful way of thinking about what a call is. Here, as I've said before, when Nathaniel first encounters and hears about Jesus from his friend Philip, who is already committing to following Jesus, uh, Nathaniel is skeptical. Both he and Philip are familiar with the expectations of a Jewish Messiah and Philip is quickly convinced after he first meets Jesus. The gospel writer does not give us much of a description about Philip's calling, but in Nathaniel's, we get a hint of how Philip might have been convinced so quickly to follow Jesus. Note that when Nathaniel first expresses his skepticism to Philip, how can this be true? The guy's from Nazareth. It's kind of like saying he's from Jersey, I think, as a New Yorker, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Philip does not respond with further arguments and evidence. He doesn't, you know, cite scripture verses or point to all these things. His advice is simply, come and see. So because he trusts his friend, Nathaniel goes and seeks Jesus out for himself. When Nathaniel finally meets Jesus, Jesus is already waiting for him. He says, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. 
What an odd thing to say about someone when you first meet them. But this pronouncement actually stuns Nathaniel because to him, it points to a deep understanding of who he is. It's probably something extremely important to his own sense of self, but not something that he thinks is immediately apparent to those who know him and love him already. It's a private truth. He doesn't even think that, oh, maybe Philip told Jesus about this. That doesn't seem to cross his mind. Instead, his reaction is, how can you possibly know this? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And it's at that moment, Nathaniel has his epiphany that Jesus is indeed the son of God and the true king of Israel. Now, don't take Jesus' response here as a rebuke, necessarily, of his earlier skepticism when he questions Nathaniel for believing because of the fig tree observation. I think Jesus is clarifying to Nathaniel that there's more to what he's just beginning to see. Through the vision of angels ascending and descending, an image that recalls Jacob's dream of the ladder to God, Jesus is identifying himself as both the person and the place through which we might have access to God. Also, at this point, it's worth taking note of scholars' observations here of the biblical tradition of naming. Uh, the writer of this gospel is really known for use of symbolism and playing around on biblical references, so um, there's wordplay here that's important. In the Bible, the act of naming someone indicates that the person doing the naming has some sort of authority over them. It doesn't just indicate a new relationship, but just uh, that authority over that other person. So God names Abram, Abraham, and Sarai, Sarah, when he is reaffirming his covenant with them. And Jesus, even just a few verses earlier, renames Simon as Peter when he calls Peter to be a disciple. This call story sort of flips this around. When Nathaniel calls Jesus son of God and king of Israel, he's giving Jesus special names that give the authority to him and placing himself under who Jesus is. He recognizes who Jesus is, and that means that Jesus is someone that he wants to worship and to follow and obey. And that, I think, is the essence of what call is. A call isn't God saying, you need to do this because it's really important. In and that does happen sometimes, but in essence, a call is an encounter with God in which two things are revealed simultaneously. And that is who God is and who you are. God is not some generic deity overseeing happenings on earth from far away up in heaven. The titles that Nathaniel uses, son of God, king of Israel, these are both religious titles and political titles. Given the realities of the world Philip and Nathaniel live in, where they live in a territory that has multiple layers of you know, and history of being conquered by other peoples and having different religions and faiths and practices forced on them, this is also in a ways a promise. 
a promise that God will restore creation to the goodness that it was intended for. In recognizing who we are, uh, knowing our innermost heart, knowing who we are created to be, uh, Jesus is offering to us a chance to take part in that process of restoration. When we are asked to follow Jesus and bear witness to Jesus and do the work that Jesus inspires us to do, we know we are uniquely created and equipped to respond to the call because the person calling us is the one who created us to do so. We're compelled because when God asks, God also shows us how responding to God's call can be the most fulfilling thing we will ever do. Now think about that. Isn't that what being loved actually feels like? You know, that sense that you are totally understood by another being. You know, when somebody gets you, I think that's what the kids say, but you know, when you feel seen, I think that's the call. When God says, you are made for this, it's a revelation about who you are. It's not a burden that he is placing on you. In fact, if you try to avoid that call and deny who you are, that can become the burden. Uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., when he described his own call to ministry, he was really careful to point out he never had a burning bush moment where God commissioned him to be a leader of the civil rights movement. It was actually a very drawn out experience where because he was such a bright student, he first considers becoming a doctor, then a lawyer. He might have had Asian parents, I don't know. Just kidding. Um, but it's easy to imagine how a young Martin Luther King thought those professions would become a means for him to help fellow African-Americans suffering from racism and injustice. And I love the word that he uses to describe how he discerned those paths were the wrong ones for him. He doesn't say that God appeared to him in a dream and said, don't be a doctor, don't be a lawyer. The word that he uses is that he became frustrated the more he tried to escape the call to ministry. He couldn't follow those other paths because the more he admitted to himself that his talents and ex his experience and his desire to serve God meant that those would be best expressed in ministry um, means that all the time that he spent trying to pursue a medical degree or a law degree was wasted time. It didn't fit who he was. He was made for one thing, not another. As worthy and as exciting and as interesting as those other professions were, they were not his calling. When you think about calling in this way, you realize in practice there really isn't much of a distinction between being a believer of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. Both result from encounters with God because it's that encounter, not a theological argument, that brings us into a transformative relationship with our creator. I truly believe that everyone joining me here in worship today, whether you're sitting in the pews or listening at home, is here because you are hearing that voice of God calling out to us. Whether it's through the voice of a friend, a family member, through the written word, 
or the quiet impulses deep in your heart, it compels us to come here and seek Jesus out. We can respond the way Eli told the child Samuel before he became a mighty prophet. We pray, speak, Lord, for I am listening. Amen. <laughs>